welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Frank Fukuyama of Stanford University Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. We are delighted to have everybody together to discuss some very important issues, and we're going to start with what is happening in Ukraine. I'm going to start with you, Frank. You wrote a very provocative piece for American Purpose where you said that Ukraine is the frontline state in the global geopolitical struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. And I'd like to start there because there are a lot of people who do not believe that there is currently a geopolitical struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. They think that with the end of the Cold War, it's all in the past, and now it's simply a matter of great power rivalry. Well, I wish it were true that uh, geopolitics is dead, but unfortunately, this ideological dimension is really very powerful, certainly in Vladimir Putin's mind. I think that he has been talking a lot about threats of NATO to Russian security, and I think this is actually a lot of BS. The real threat that Ukraine poses is the fact that it is a genuine democracy. I have gone to Ukraine. Uh, we, we run a lot of programs in Ukraine, so I've been there a lot over the last few years. And it's a free society. It's a society where people can associate, they can complain, they can write articles criticizing the government, they can do all sorts of things that you can do in a normal liberal democracy that you simply could not do uh, in Russia. And Putin has made a big deal out of the fact that there's a certain traditional Slavic culture that demands centralized authoritarian government. And the real threat, I think, that he faces is that Ukraine could be successful as a democracy. And that's the reason that he wants to make sure that he can destabilize the government, uh, make it look corrupt and ineffective. And if that doesn't work, which it hasn't been uh, ever since 2014, then he'll use military force to make sure that it goes away. So talk a little bit more about the nature of Ukraine. You know, you hear a lot about how much corruption there is in that country. Revealing my age here, I'm having flashbacks to arguments that raged over the Vietnam War. I mean, the South Vietnamese regime was very corrupt. This regime is corrupt. What do you say to that comparison? Well, again, this derives very much from my personal experience in Ukraine, where I spent a lot of time teaching young Ukrainians. By young, I mean mid-career people that are already leaders or have shown leadership ability and could go on to really run the country. And I'll tell you, there is a, a very vibrant younger generation there. Uh, they recognize the problems of the country. They understand that the judicial system is deeply flawed. And they've been working uh, ever since the Revolution of Dignity to try to fix that by creating an anti-corruption office, by trying to reform you know, various aspects of governance there. And so I actually I have a lot of confidence that when this generation finally comes into power, that Ukraine's problems with corruption will abate. And I think people probably that are not familiar with that country don't understand how much progress it's already made. Bill Galston, you hear a lot about Putin's worries about the expansion of NATO, that he feels encircled and that, that he feels endangered by Ukraine. What do you make of that argument? Uh, I don't dismiss it entirely, Mona. Okay. But I think what's really going on is, is something more visceral. And this is a sentiment that Mr. Putin has expressed on numerous occasions. He is still in mourning for the Soviet Union. He has said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. 
which takes in a lot of territory. And it that does. That wouldn't have been the first on my list, but uh, that's that's what makes for showbiz, I guess. And uh, he is determined to restore as much as he can of what was lost to Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. That is his overall purpose. Obviously, to do that, he needs to retain power at home. But for him, his power is not without purpose. He sees himself as the great restorationist of Russian slash Soviet greatness. He would love to exert a primacy over as many of the now independent countries of the old Soviet Union as he can. Maximally, he would like to divide Europe and expel NATO from Europe, remove American influence or weaken it to such an extent that Russia is the principal power on the European continent. So I think it's a combination of genuine fear, as Frank has said, uh, about the consequences of a successful Ukrainian democracy for him, or indeed a successful democracy anywhere on the periphery of Russia. Plus, what I think it is technically correct to call Russian revanchism. And he will measure his success as president, not just by his own survival, but whether uh, a significant portion of the old Soviet Union has been returned to Russian influence. Linda, I've seen it argued that this is a brilliant move by Putin because he is dividing NATO and proving the weakness of NATO, and that's been his longstanding ambition. Let me pose an alternative thesis. He is strengthening NATO by these openly aggressive moves against Ukraine. Now, of course, Ukraine's not a member of NATO, but we have friendly relations with Ukraine, and we actually signed a treaty with them actually in 1994 to get them to give up their nuclear weapons and promise to protect their sovereignty uh, and respect their sovereignty. So did Russia, haha. But in any event, Elliot Cohen, among others, make the case that, look, this move by Russia to 100,000 troops outside Ukraine's border has strengthened NATO. It's reminded NATO of its function. You now have Sweden and Finland making noises about possibly joining NATO. I mean, uh, you could say this is really backfiring on Putin. Well, I think it will backfire on him in the long run. And I think that's absolutely right, that it reminds all of us why we need NATO. Uh, think back on the early days of the Trump administration and Donald Trump's dissatisfaction with NATO. They weren't, according to him, paying their way. Uh, he didn't seem to understand uh, how NATO functioned, who it is that paid for NATO, etc. cetera. Um, and what he was complaining about was that the member nations did not all spend as much of their GDP uh, as the United States would wish in terms of their own defense. Yeah, he made it sound like they owed he, us the money. They owed us money, like somehow <laughs> right, they were right. supposed to pay us for defending them. Right. Yeah, but yeah. the point is that NATO is still necessary. It's not just simply a relic of the 20th century and the aftermath of World War II. And I think what Putin is showing, I mean, we talked about whether or not he feels like he is surrounded well, you know, if you're uh, a country that's peaceable and has no imperial ambitions and is not worried about your own people in some way rebelling against you, what do you care if every country around you that borders you uh, is democratic and are a part of a democratic uh, alliance that's dedicated to mutual protection? That wouldn't bother you if, if you yourself did not have nefarious aims. And, that, and that's the point, is that Vladimir Putin, his country's not doing all that well economically. He's been in power a very long time, and he's been in power as a despot. And so when you have countries uh, bordering Russia that uh, have chosen a different way, if you are a despot, may be seen as threatening to you. And it's also true that, you know, Russia and, and uh, Putin in particular uh, had absorbed Ukraine, which we used to call the Ukraine, as if it were uh, simply a province, as it was, of the Soviet Union. 
and he wants that back. But the stakes here are much higher, and they have not only to do with Vladimir Putin, they also have to do with the West and the United States, its prestige, its place in the world, and the signal that it sends to what I think is our real threat, and that is Xi Jinping uh, in China. Uh, you're suggesting, I guess, that if we don't mount a vigorous defense of Ukraine, both diplomatically and other ways, perhaps you know, sending them defensive weapons, that this would be an invitation to China to invade Taiwan. That's right. Well, I mean, look, if we can be rolled in this region, there's no question that China would very much like to take on Taiwan. And so that would be an utter disaster. And there's also, I think, the concern that whatever kind of conflict took place on Ukrainian territory, there is no guarantee that it would not, in fact, spill over and that we would not see other countries ultimately become involved. Damon, some people say that it's very important to underscore and to have the U.S. take a leading role in underscoring the principle that you just can't violate other nations' sovereignty because you can and that you don't just roll troops across borders. So do you think that that is a principle worth worth standing up for? Uh, I do, although I think the United States is not in a particularly strong position at this point to enunciate that as an absolute principle, given that we have invaded and overthrown the governments of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya over the last 20 years. Now, I, I'm not raising and putting on the table a question of whether those were legitimate acts. I think it's a mixed bag, frankly, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but it, it's a little difficult to kind of make a full-throated expression of that position when most of the world will roll their eyes. Yep. So my, my view on this as the kind of resident realist on the program, and I mean that in the technical sense, not like trying <laughs> to put myself up as automatically more realistic than everybody else in the room. I, I look at the foreign policy a little bit differently. I'm not really persuaded that democracy is the core issue, and I actually think that insisting that it is ends up tying our hands in this situation. I take Putin pretty much at his word uh, based on both what he says and then his revealed preferences by his acts that this really is about NATO. And that is by no means to give him any benefit of any doubt, because what it means is he's effectively saying, I want Ukraine and Belarus and Georgia to be my playground. I want to be able to do whatever I want in these places. And I'm sick of NATO encroaching and getting closer and closer and threatening to take them away from me. And I'm willing to engineer this crisis and risk a war in order to bring it about. And as well as challenging the, the liberal international order that opposes such an act. That's, a, that's an act of tremendous riskiness and shows that he really cares about this issue. He really thinks it's worth bringing the world to the brink of a major crisis and a major war in Europe over this. And uh, I'm not sure... Uh, kind of couching it in terms of it being an ideological struggle over democracy helps our reaction to that. And the reason why is the following. If we refuse to negotiate with Putin over what he claims he wants and what his position is, we've rendered this situation as one in which uh, we only really have the option of him invading and us standing by and watching it happen or having to fight a war on Ukraine's side. And Putin knows that we're not going to do the latter. And if, if everyone on the podcast, I'm sure, remembers, I think it's possible to say we got into this mess in the first place because George W. Bush wanted to extend NATO membership to Georgia and Ukraine but there was insufficient support in 2008 to extend membership action plans to those two countries because of vetoes from France and Germany, with France and Germany doing that because they realized there wasn't enough uh, support and public opinion at home to back it up. So what you got was this compromise where NATO offered a kind of halfway measure to these aspiring nations saying effectively, we're not gonna promise you can join NATO, 
and we're not going to give you a timeline, but we'll let you in at some point. That was a bluff, and Putin is now calling it, and and he knows that we won't fight a war to defend Ukraine, which means it's really up to him to decide, am I going to do this thing to get what I want or not? And he, in that way, holds most of the cards. So I would much rather us try to actually negotiate with him over this, maybe pull back to the countries that are in NATO and make absolutely clear to him that we will fight a war to defend those countries, and he better get that through his head, rather than kind of play this kind of mixed up a halfway measure game that we are right now. So that's kind of where I come down on all of this. Okay, so I'm going to say, Damon, that that's a version of an argument that I've seen from others like Ross Douthat, who basically called it we should surrender Ukraine because it's not as important to us as it is to him. And we don't plan to fight for it. So just be realistic, right? But I would like to hear Frank on this subject. As, as would I. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there are many steps between all out war and surrender, right? That's absolutely right. I don't think anybody is advocating that the United States send troops to actually fight on Ukraine's behalf. I think the real option in front of us, uh, and, and furthermore, nobody's talking about NATO membership. And if Damon is right that in 2008, when the prospect was offered, nobody was really offering that seriously, even back then. I think that right now, the option is whether we help the Ukrainians fight for themselves. And the only problem with this idea that Russia really wants this sphere of influence around itself and that we should concede that to him is that it basically gives no agency to the peoples that live in these unfortunate countries that Russia thinks is its own territory. And it's very clear that the vast majority of Ukrainians do not want to live as part of Russia. And I, I guess the final thing I would say is that if you think that if we were to concede Belarus, Ukraine, and Georgia to Russia, that they would then stop there and say, okay, we've got our playground and we'll just be a normal European country. You're wrong. They've made this absolutely clear in the last few weeks. They want to upset the entire settlement post-1991. They don't want the United States to support Poland or the Czech Republic or any of the other countries that joined early on and so we're not going to be done with Mr. Putin if we surrender this sphere of influence around him. He's going to be coming back for more. It all depends on the, the balance of forces or the correlation of forces, as he puts it. And just to link to some of the domestic issues that you talk about on this podcast, I think he thinks this is the right moment to do it because America right now is weak and divided, and he's going to take advantage of that division to get away with stuff that he hasn't been able to get away with previously. Okay, thank you, Bill. I'm coming to you. I just want to note that there was a story that Germany, which has played a, not such a helpful role in this crisis, has offered to the Ukrainians 5,000 helmets. <laughs> and the mayor of Kiev responded by saying, really? He said, what kind of support will they send next? Pillows? Uh, okay, Bill, what was your comment going to be? It was going to be almost exactly that, Mona. Oh, uh, no kidding. <laughs> but no, no kidding, but in a somewhat broader context. Okay. And that is that just widening the aperture of our discussion a little bit, this isn't just between the United States and Russia. This is a dispute between the United States and NATO and between the United States and Europe, whether or not Europe has a telephone number that can be dialed. And it has served, therefore, as a very interesting X-ray of consensus and dissensus within these various institutional iterations of the Western alliance. And it is a moment of truth for this somewhat ramshackle German government headed by an SPD chancellor who is somewhat beholden to a party that has always been soft on Russia. And trying to hold together a coalition with a foreign minister who is notably tougher than the chancellor, although she too is a member of a somewhat dovish party. And 
And turning for a minute to France, President Macron has decided that this is just a dandy time to restate his longstanding preference for a European foreign policy that's independent of the United States. And he plans, if he could maneuver it, to make his own outreach to Russia. So the question of whether the United States can hold together and unify an alliance that has been sounding a pretty uncertain trumpet up to now is very much in play. And I'm not smart enough to figure out how this is going to work out, but this is not the West's finest hour, or at least it hasn't been up until now. Linda, could I just get you on the record on something else, another aspect of this whole drama, and that is that the Republican Party seem to be dividing into different wings on this. So on the one hand, you have a number of Republicans who are trying to hit Biden from the right and say that he is weak and not tough enough on Russia. But at the same time, you have a big part of the infotainment part of Conservatism Inc., specifically head by Tucker Carlson, who have been basically taking a Kremlin line on, on all this. And, and of course, there's evidence that attitudes at the grassroots have changed because of the Trump effect. So a uh, 2018 Gallup poll found that the number of Republicans who called Russia a friend or ally rose from 22% in 2014 to 40% in 2018. Yeah. And by the way, the Republicans in the Senate have been pretty good. I mean, they've been strong on this, but not so much members of the House. Yeah, that is absolutely true, although it's not consistently true in the House. There are also you know, yes, some House true. members, including those on House Foreign Affairs, who've been good. The problem is more the split in the party base and in the difference between being an elected member of Congress and being Tucker Carlson or one of the other infotainers that are allied with the Republican Party. I mean, Fox News, at least Tucker Carlson, if you were to tune in on an evening and hear him talking, you might be right to at least question whether you had accidentally turned on Russia today. Apparently the Russians are concerned he's laying it on too thick and that he'll <laughs> lose credibility. <laughs> right. So, yeah, no, and that is sort of scary. And this does all have to do with this neo-isolationist sentiment that Donald Trump uh, exemplified, but, you know, not just neo-isolationist, but also tilting toward Russia. And I think that is very dangerous. And it's great that we still have members of Congress who are Republican, who are willing to talk about what a danger Putin is and what a danger an expansionist Russia would be to peace and security in Europe. But if the base doesn't support them and if they start getting hit at home to why are you bothering to talk about that? You know, we know who the enemy is. You know, it's Anthony Fauci, not, not Vladimir Putin. <laughs> um <laughs> then I think you'll see them pull back, and that would be very dangerous. Um, Frank, I want to just come back to you on one more thing, and that is the role of energy in all of this. So Russia provides 40% of, of Europe's natural gas, and so people say he has the whip hand. But first of all, isn't it true that he also relies on the revenue from those sales? And so it's kind of like pointing a gun at his own head, don't you think? And, uh, and then talk a bit, if you would, about Germany's decision, Angela Merkel's decision to eliminate their nuclear program, which would have made them at least slightly less dependent on the Russians. Well, unfortunately, I think the Russians still have a lot of leverage. They've got a lot of reserves. And I think that they could suffer a, a drop in revenues from exporting natural gas to Europe much more easily than the Europeans can tolerate going through the rest of the winter without gas. Now, the one really good thing that the Biden administration is doing at the moment is to try to make up for that Russian shortfall by getting Middle Eastern producers like Qatar to send lots of LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas, uh, to Europe uh, to bolster the supply. Um, Nord Stream, you know, has been this awful project of Gerhard Schroeder that was a mistake right from the beginning. It is particularly harmful to Ukraine because currently most of the Russian gas going to Europe 
transits through Ukraine, and it's a really important source of earnings for Ukraine, uh, the transit fees that have to be paid on that gas. And so Putin's motive in creating this pipeline right from the beginning was not simply to generate revenues, it was to weaken Ukraine, which is why the Ukrainians have been trying to stop it. And unfortunately, Angela Merkel and the German business community are looking primarily at their short-run economic self-interest, ignoring the fact that the Russians have consistently been willing to use gas exports as a political weapon. Uh, regarding the German decision to shut their nuclear plants, it was a big mistake. I mean, I think that countries around the world ought to be actually exploring new investments in nuclear if you're actually going to deal with carbon emissions going into the future. Uh, and it does uh, reduce their foreign policy options right now. All right. Uh, Bill Galston, did you want to say a word about the polling data? Uh, yeah, thanks for letting me back in, Mona. Only to say that the Pew Research Center, which is a very, very high-quality polling organization, among other things, they released a survey finding among Republicans and Democrats overall essentially no differences between the parties in their attitudes towards Russia. So the evidence that Tucker Carlson and company are speaking on behalf of a pro-Russian, anti-Ukrainian surge at the Republican grassroots level is a little bit hard to detect. And I think I would give more credence to this survey than to a 2018 survey that probably reflected Trump's unhealthy contribution to relations between the United States and Russia. I can't prove that, but I sure think it. Okay, well, that's interesting. I'll just note that this memo has not yet reached some of the candidates because in the uh, Ohio GOP Senate primary, you've had J.D. Vance and Bernie Moreno, who have both made the argument that Biden seems to care more about Ukraine's border than America's southern border. And Adam Laxalt, who's running in Nevada, has also made similar points. So anyway, it's out there, let's just say. They may be wrong, but they think they're appealing to some strain of thought in the Republican base. Okay, let us turn now to the Supreme Court. So we learned this week what apparently the Biden administration has known for a few weeks, which is that Justice Breyer is going to step down after 28 years. And one of the things that people are wondering about is whether there will be a big fight. Uh, we've gotten used to that. There was a huge fight when Kavanaugh was named to the Justice Kennedy seat. Uh, Linda, I'm going to come to you first. Do you think that this one, since it's going to be a straight swap, a young liberal, say, for an older liberal, um, do you think that the stakes are going to be perceived to be as high this time and there will be a fight or no? Whether or not there's going to be a fight is going to be determined by, you know, how high the actual stakes in terms of the composition of the court are going to be. I think a lot of it plays into election politics and whether or not the Republicans think that they can use this issue to try to paint Biden as very far left and as having moved farther to the left than he was perceived as a candidate. And that it's really going to be all about that. And, you know, and I do look back to Biden's decision uh, during one of the debates, apparently, when he came off stage and Congressman Clyburn, who, of course, is more than any single person responsible for Joe Biden's having gotten the nomination of the Democratic Party, Clyburn said, you need to go back out there and, and commit uh, to making uh, your first Supreme Court selection a black woman. People want to hear that. And essentially, that is what then-candidate Biden uh, did. And President Biden now apparently is uh, probably going to live up to that. And all of the people that are being talked about are black women. And, you know, it's not the first time that uh, demographics, racial, ethnic, and religious, and, and uh, gender demographics uh, have played a prominent role in selection. You and I remember Sandra Day O'Connor and, and Ronald Reagan's, you know, getting kudos for appointing uh, the first woman to the Supreme Court. 
but it will, I think, if if uh, he does uh, move forward and, and selects one of these women, it, it is going to give some Republicans the chance, depending on which of the women he chooses, an opportunity to be able to say this is all about politics, this is all about uh, the Democratic Party's uh, leftward movement, it's all about paying off debts uh, to uh, the base. And and so I think, you know, I think there is going to be a fight. I, I don't know that that um, Republicans are going to win, but I, I don't think they're going to just open, you know, open their arms and embrace a, a Katanji Brown-Jackson or a Leandra Cougar or Michelle Childs or any of the people who are being talked about. Yeah. So, Damon, one of the things that you're hearing is... Um, what will Mansion and Cinema do now? You hear this from the people on the left. Is that a silly question? I mean, they have voted for all of Biden's nominees. Uh, the, the idea that they would resist this is kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think there were some uh, sort of progressive troublemakers on Twitter on <laughs> Wednesday, the day that uh, uh, the news broke about Breyer's retirement, and they were you know, trolling around and trying to dig up trouble uh, by suggesting that Mansion and Cinema are going to kind of sink a Biden appointment, and and I think that's ridiculous. Provided that Biden picks someone within the liberal judicial mainstream, which I, I suspect he will. Now, if he picks some kind of left wing progressive lion, then that could cause trouble. But that would be supremely foolish of Biden to do. And I don't think he and the administration are that foolish. So I, I, I trust they'll pick some mainstream candidate. And I think all three of the black jurists who are, are being talked about a lot, I certainly fit within that. And I, I frankly, I, I tend, I mean, who knows? And it's not as if Linda really, you know, gave a really strong push for saying it's going to be a, an ugly smackdown of a, of a fight. I tend to think that at least by the standards, say the Kavanaugh hearings and so forth, this will probably go pretty smoothly. The main reason why, well, there, there are two, I guess you could say. One is Republicans don't have a history of going as completely bonkers as uh, Democrats sometimes do. Um, from Bork to Clarence Thomas to Brett Kavanaugh, that was in all three cases Democrats who got very exercised about the nominee. If you think back to Sotomayor or Breyer or uh, Elena Kagan's confirmations, they, they all went pretty smoothly. And I think that uh, there's no reason to suppose it will be anywhere other than that because of the second consideration that the, the Republicans are in a very strong position on the court. They have their six to three majority. This retirement isn't going to change that one bit. So they're in a very good position to be costlessly magnanimous on this one. And this is especially, I think, the case because uh, given how early we are in the year and in the 2022 midterm election cycle, this should probably be wrapped up by sometime in the summer at the latest. And given that fact, it's not even going to have a big impact on the election. So uh, the only way it would it would drag on that long and become a big mess is if the person Biden nominates is kind of out of the mainstream. It eventually goes down in flames and he has to nominate somebody else. Then we're into the fall and then things get ugly for Biden. But I, I don't envision that happening again. Republicans aren't going to lose a single thing by this. Now, of course, if this had worked out differently, if Breyer hadn't retired and then he died or was incapacitated in some way between 2023 and 24, after Republicans perhaps have taken over the Senate, in that case, it would have been all out nuclear war in Washington over what to do. And I think we maybe would have seen a replay of what happened in the final year of Obama's administration, which would have been very, very bad. But thankfully, Breyer uh, was reasonable in his pragmatic way and uh, decided to do uh, what I think is the right thing and step down now when things can go as smoothly as I think they will. Bill, everything Damon says is true, but I would just add this footnote, which is 
that the Republicans who didn't make a fuss about previous liberal nominees were a different party from the one we see now. And so it's kind of a question mark as to how this will play out in terms of, you know, people playing to the base and wanting to score points and so forth. I don't know. But the question I have for you is, do you think Democrats can use this to their advantage going into the midterms in any fashion? Will this energize African-American voters because the likely nominee will be, well, the certain nominee will be a black female and so forth? I think this is a modest godsend oh, okay. for, for the president and for the Democratic Party. And I say that because right now relations between the president and African-Americans are at a low ebb with a very substantial minority of African-Americans actually disapproving of his performance in office. This is a big warning signal. I think a lot of that has to do with how dispiriting the failure to move an inch on voting rights has been for African-Americans who, for understandable reasons, give this issue an enormously high priority. This is an opportunity to get back some of that lost ground. And frankly, I think that the administration would relish a fight with the Republicans on this issue, which they will win. As far as I can tell, there are no procedural tricks that Republicans in the Senate could use in order to derail the nomination. They can complicate the path to the nomination, but that's about it. The more of a fuss the Republicans make, the more Democrats in general and African-Americans in particular will rally around the nominee and in the process help to repair some of the frayed relations that have developed over the past six months. So I don't see any downsides whatsoever for either the president or the party stemming from this development, none. So, Frank, one thing that could be weird about this confirmation, so these hearings, is that a number of huge, socially significant, highly controversial matters could well have already been decided. Now, of course, nothing is permanent in life, but, uh, but they, there could have been, by that point, a decision on abortion, on affirmative action, and on guns. And so do you think it will be a little, I don't know, anticlimactic? Or you know, how do you think that will play into all of this? Uh, I suspect that uh, it probably will be anticlimactic. You know, so much of the fight over the court really was over rolling back Roe v. Wade. And if the current court uh, succeeds in doing that, I think that that's really where the, you know, the fight's going to come, because then the fight moves to the states and there's a whole series of new issues that uh, that suddenly open up. And I'm not sure that there are that many issues on the docket, you know, that are remotely comparable. And in any event, you know, having, uh, keeping your, your three to six minority is not going to change the outcome of any of those future battles. Uh, so I would say it's pretty limited. Right. Okay. Well, if anybody uh, has anything else to add to this discussion, anything else we should be looking out for, uh, please speak now. Yeah, Linda. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time focusing about the politics of this and who it's going to help or hurt. One of the things I think that nobody has mentioned yet is that Stephen Breyer's long tenure and his standing in the court in terms of his intellect, in terms of his experience has been very important. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor is now going to be the essentially ranking uh, Democrat on the uh, Supreme Court. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate when a president is picking nominees based on demographics or, or in large part caving to that notion that we have to have a balanced court uh, demographically is that, you know, intellect, history, legal mind is is incredibly important. And while there are only three liberals now uh, on the court, uh, that may not always be. And I guess I still am an optimist enough 
to believe that sometimes if you have a really good argument and you've really done your your homework, you might even be able to persuade, at least at the margin, some of your colleagues on particular uh, cases and issues. So I hope that whoever the president chooses is somebody who is going to be able to step into Stephen Breyer's uh, shoes. Uh, but Linda, this this effort to have representation on the court has failed miserably. There isn't a single Protestant. I know. Well, I was going to say <laughs> yes. That was the other thing I forgot to mention. Yes, we have uh, we have some Jewish members for uh, the longest time. We have right. No we've and yeah. we've got a whole heck of a lot of Catholics. Yes, but uh, they are on all different sides of important questions. That's so. true. Anyway, all right. Uh, Mona, yeah. can I just make one? further comment. You bet. Contradicting what I just said, there is an issue potentially that could come before the court, which is related to the old the Schedule F executive order that the Trump administration issued right at the end of its uh, first four years. There is a conservative legal theory that argues that merit-based hiring as a whole is um, unconstitutional and should be replaced by uh, at-will hiring, which is being done by many Republican state legislatures around the country. This is a kind of time bomb for the federal civil service that many people are not aware mm. of, and I suspect that conservatives are going to push it before the Supreme Court at some point in the future. And so that's something to keep an eye on. Oh, that's interesting. I was not aware of that. Well, thank you for that. All right. Uh, Mona, yes. Mona, Mona. yes, Bill. I have another addition yep. uh, to the docket in the same spirit. Okay. And this one could call into question 90 years of administrative law. There's a case called, I believe, West Virginia versus EPA that challenges the way in which the federal government has been delegating important decisions to administrative agencies for 90 years since the New Deal. And this whole question, the non-delegation doctrine and what it really means, has been festering for a long time in conservative legal circles. And many members of the Supreme Court on the conservative side have expressed their doubts in writing about the constitutionality of these procedures that have been used uh, for nearly a century. This could be a blockbuster case, and it would upend the federal government does business. So stay tuned. So this is why you tune in to Beg to Differ, is where you get the breaking news about these sexy topics like Chevron deference. Uh, <laughs> no, look, no, really, I, I'm I'm joking, but I'm not. I mean, it's, it's great that we cover things in depth, and I, I think that's important. All right, let us turn now to our final segment. So it is now time for our highlight or low light or both of the week. And I will start with our distinguished guest. Well, I would say the low light was a comment that Biden casually made on a visit in which he looked like he was about to repeat that same argument uh, that we would respond with sanctions to Russia if it was a major incursion. And he kind of caught himself in the middle of that sentence and then Jen Psaki started calling for the end of the news conference so that he couldn't actually complete the thought. It was not the best performance I've seen on the part of a chief executive. Okay, moving on to Linda Chavez. I was going to raise an article that sort of fell in the cracks between our last show and, and this show, and that was an article uh, by Brett Stevens in the New York Times, which was called What an Anti-Semite's Fantasy Says About Jewish Reality. And the column was really about the uh, takeover of the synagogue in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in which a number of uh, synagogue attendants, I think it was four people or so, were caught up when a man from Great Britain came over and took over the synagogue hoping to free a woman terrorist who was uh, serving a uh, term in a nearby prison in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
And what Brett talks about is the way in which this story was reported, and particularly the way in which the FBI reported this story in the aftermath of uh, the freeing of the hostages and the killing of the man who had taken them hostage. And that was to not treat it as an anti-Semitic attack, despite the fact that it had been an attack on a synagogue. And to talk about it in terms of, you know, its relationship to freeing this woman, not an attack on the Jewish community. And uh, Brett also talked about the way in which sometimes attacks on the Jewish community, which to anyone who is familiar with anti-Semitism, recognizes uh, that as an anti-Semitic act, are glossed over and not dealt in that way. And I say that because there does seem to be a rise in anti-Semitism in uh, Denver, Colorado, and in, in two other cities, I think San Francisco and Miami this last week. There were flyers that were handed out blaming Jews for having created the COVID crisis, uh, profiting from vaccines, and basically controlling the whole administration's uh, effort to fight COVID. So I think it's worth noting, it's worth thinking about, and I thought it was a, a terrific article. Yes, uh, 100% agree. And when uh, when someone attacks a synagogue for the officials to be pulling their chins for long periods of time and saying, can't figure out what the motive might be here, <laughs> uh, is really kind right. of sad. <laughs> All right, Bill Galston. Well, as a highlight, I'd like to call attention to a very useful argument in Vox, written by Andrew Prokop, with the title, American Democracy is Under Threat, But What is the Threat Exactly? Uh, Prokop does a very nice job, in my opinion, of sorting out the multiple, not exactly competing, but not exactly congruent strands of the democracy in peril argument. And he gives each one of those strands, I think, respectful treatment and its due, uh, although he does comment that what he calls a think piece industrial complex about democracy's peril has sprung up. <laughs> I, think <that's, laughs> I think that's a fair and a fair judgment. Frank and I are charter members of this complex, <laughs> and we intend to produce our product unabated, of course, with appropriate public subsidies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Damon Linker. Well, my choice is a highlight about a low light. This is uh, an essay that I'm sure our listeners would not probably encounter on their own because it's in Indianapolis Monthly, obviously a local publication uh, from Indiana. The author is Adam Wren, spelled uh, W-R-E-N, and the title is The Pursuits of Liberty. This is a a roughly 5,000-word uh, feature article and expose about an organization called Liberty Fund, about which I, I have been quite fond over the years. I've attended about a dozen conferences hosted by this organization, Liberty Fund, uh, over the years, uh, probably over the last, say, 23 years. They're a libertarian organization, and their founder, a businessman named Pierre Goodrich, founded it in order to foster a reflection by sort of ordinary people in the United States on the foundations and of and maintenance of a free society. And basically people come together from around the country, usually at a nice hotel somewhere, and read classic books about liberty, democracy, freedom, and so forth from Plato through the American founders to the present day. And you don't really have to produce anything other than a good conversation with your fellow people at the conference. And it's a very slow motion notion of how you increase uh, love of liberty. Well, this vision, uh, according to this piece, has been threatened at Liberty Fund by uh, the rise of uh, attachment to more day-to-day uh, -day Republican politics and especially support for Donald Trump. This has led to uh, some real rocky situations and conflicts on the staff, including one employee uh, named Nico Melaberti, who 
a couple of years ago began raising questions about institutional drift and whether the organization might even be violating its tax-exempt status by becoming more politicized. This gentleman ended up being fired while stuck in traffic on the telephone uh, last summer and then eventually killed himself. Now, this article uses uh, this unfortunate event, his suicide, as the kind of opening uh, anecdote into an examination of this organization. I don't want to come down too hard on Liberty Fund. This is just one article. Uh, I'm sure they have some kind of a response to the accusations in it. But uh, for those of you who listen to the podcast and are interested in the fate of uh, sort of libertarian slash conservative slash center-right organizations and intellectual life in America. This is uh, perhaps a little peripheral story, but an important one nevertheless. So I recommend the piece. Thank you. All right. For my highlight, I'm going to take a page from the Damon Linker playbook and, and cite a tweet, or rather a tweet thread from Patrick Chovanek, who is a very bright person, and he has been a guest actually on Beg to Differ. And he was sort of ruminating about our options in Ukraine. And he said, this crisis in Ukraine reminds me of another foreign policy crisis, the Soviet blockade of Berlin. And he mentions that in 1948, which was, by the way, the year before NATO came into existence, the Soviets halted all road and rail supplies to West Berlin, which was in East Germany time. And uh, so this presented the Truman administration with a serious crisis. They did not want to abandon West Berlin, but they saw no way to preserve our presence there without trying to force our way through and risking a shooting war. And the generals apparently were advising, the U.S. generals were advising the president that uh, it was either going to be a war, which the U.S. was not prepared to fight, or the U.S. would ultimately have to surrender West Berlin. And at home, Truman was under criticism from both left and right, but he launched the airlift, which actually did succeed. It saved the city, and it was a, a tremendous political victory also for Truman. His point in telling this story is that there are frequently situations where it looks like there's no alternative between surrender and all-out war, but that if you're a little creative, there sometimes can be. So I recommend that. I recommend that you follow him on Twitter if you're a Twitter person. And I want to give a very hearty thank you to Frank Fukuyama for joining us. And thanks to all of our listeners, especially those who've been commenting and rating us. We really appreciate that. And to those also who've taken the time to write uh, and express their views, always appreciated. And with that, we will return next week as ever. Thank you. Thank you.